The following message is a part of the teaching ministry of Grace Bible Church of Fairburn, Georgia, also on the web at gracebible.faith. That's gracebible.faith. Okay, as Frank mentioned, we we did start Grace Bible Church five years ago on Mother's Day at the, I don't know, Holiday Inn Express? I don't remember what it was. Was that, a, was that the, it was some kind of hotel. Okay, Holiday Inn Express, and David has put together a slideshow we'll watch at the end here uh, to, to celebrate that and remember back over those five years. But we always, every year, celebrate, uh, as has been mentioned, both our church's anniversary and Mother's Day. And, um, you know, this is my, my first Mother's Day of my life without a mom since my mom went to be with the Lord on April 27th. And as I look back on the 46 years of my life with a mother, a large degree of what I am today came from her. She had a tremendous impact on my life and how I was molded into what I am today. And that's by design. It's God's design in Titus 2, or the example we see in 2 Timothy 1 of how moms are commanded to, and indeed of oversized influence on families and children. And it's a good design, and I praise God for it. Today we are going to keep working through Galatians, which to a large degree is a gift to the other mother in my life, my wife, the mother of my children. I've never been one to listen to her request on what I should preach on next, but I relented finally. So it's not a Mother's Day sermon per se, but it is in honor of one of our mothers that we continue on in this study. So you can turn to Galatians. We've spent three weeks in it thus far introducing it, and we're just about ready to start our exposition of it. Today will be a transition uh, from introduction to exposition. We'll have a little bit of both, a very light exposition. We're going to walk through nine verses of chapter one, but mostly at a very high level. We'll save a lot of the details for future weeks, just trying to understand the main point of those first nine verses. And then we'll have our last bit of introduction uh, which is the historical context of the letter. And as we've taught along the way, we've done a lot of review. I think it's really good in general for learning. Repetition is the mother of all learning, as they say. But it's also important because I'm sporadic in my teaching. In fact, this is the last week I'll teach until I pick back up again in July. So as frustrating as it may be, we'll do another review uh, this morning. It'll be a real quick one, and then we will make further progress in the book. So again, three weeks. First week, the big question was, should spirit-filled Gentiles be circumcised and observe the law? And the answer was no. They should not, and they must not. The law did have a certain glory. It was what set Israel apart from every other nation. It was given in glory. It was given directly by the hand of God. But nevertheless, the, these Gentile believers who were filled with the Spirit of God should not, must not turn to it. And we said, hey, Paul's going to have to answer a couple of questions if that's what his message is. Who is he to make such a change after thousands of years? And what is he saying then? Did the law fail? Is that why there has to be this change? And if the law isn't there anymore, what are we governed by? So those were the questions that we said Paul is going to answer in this book. Second week, we talked about the ethos of Galatians, which was anxiety. This letter was born out of a great anxiety. Paul had 
a daily concern. Even later in his ministry, as he was writing to the Corinthians, he talked about his daily burden for the churches. But this was early. These were the first churches he had founded, and he already was fearful in such a short time that his labor over them, teaching them, bringing them the gospel, being stoned and left for dead, that that labor would be empty, worthless, in vain. And they, the Galatians, were worrying him because they had very quickly turned to the idea that had been taught to them by others after Paul's departure that they ought to be circumcised, that they ought to keep the law of Moses. And we're going to cover that historical details in just a minute. And then we had one more week of introduction last week, and we talked about, again, despite the law having a certain glory, Paul was anxious because they were leaving what he had brought them, which had more glory, which was more glorious than what they were turning to. And in a word, we said what he had brought them was the gospel. And we gave a definition of the gospel, a unique message. It was a word. It was something spoken. It was a a word from God about Jesus Christ. This gospel was fully revealed after his coming and was especially concerning his death and resurrection. And it was given to the end that we might be declared innocent. Remember the fancy word for that? We might be justified or declared innocent despite our sins, despite actually being guilty. The gospel would allow us to be declared innocent and adopted into God's family as a gift through faith. And that faith we talked about unites us with Christ by his Spirit. That's a lot, and that's what we covered last week. And we talked about Romans 1.16 equates the gospel with the power of God. Again, more glorious than the sun, more glorious than anything in creation you can imagine, is this word, which is the very power of God. We said, hey, how can that be? Remember, how did God create the universe? By word, how is he coming back? What is, how is he described when he comes back and subdues the universe? It's the word of God. And we talked lastly about how that faith and that word was a little bit like the wire that runs from the power plant over uh, west of here just a ways to the lamp in our uh, entrance. There's a wire that connects those two that brings the power of that plant to that light. And that's what faith does. Faith, as we hear the word of God, in some spiritual way, brings the righteousness of God. In fact, the very spirit of God himself into us. That happens through faith, which is kind of like a wire. So that's the fastest, I think, we have reviewed uh, thus far, and we're done with our review. And now we're ready to jump into the book. I'm actually going to do it in the opposite order. We're going to do that light exposition, the first nine verses, briefly up front, and then we'll get into the final part of our introduction, which is the historical context. But let's go ahead and turn to Galatians 1, and we're going to read the first nine verses, which is appropriately, the introduction to the book of Galatians. I'm going to read them and then we'll talk through them. Paul, an apostle, not sent from men nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brethren who are with me to the churches of Galatia, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us out of this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, 
to whom be the glory forevermore. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really not another, only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even though we, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Now, that's the introduction to Galatians, those nine verses. And because of the work we've done in introducing the book, we should be able to understand these verses quite readily. It shouldn't take us long. There are, to be sure, some verses that need more explanation, but I'm going to save those details for future weeks. The point here is just to get into the text lightly and then springboard from that into our last introductory material, which again is the historical, the context, the history behind the letter. These first nine verses are divided into two sections. You can probably see it. The first five are the salutation. Does anybody recognize this picture? Remember salutations? Salutation is just a fancy word for greetings. Yeah, the first five verses are just greetings. And if you've ever read Charlotte's Web, the, the Charlotte would send her greetings through messages, and Paul is sending his greetings in the first five verses here. The next four, verses six through nine, are the occasion of the letter. So we have the salutation, and then we have the occasion. And that's just a fancy word that means, hey, why did you write? Like, why did you take the time to pick up a pen or to hire someone who would be his scribe, why did you take the time to do that? What was the reason? What was the occasion for the letter? And again, that's the historical situation that I'm going to talk a little bit more about in just the future. But let's start with a salutation. Again, it's just Paul sending greetings to those to whom he's writing. And you'll remember when we talked the second week about Paul's anxiety, almost every time he sends greetings... He's going to say something nice about the people, or he's going to thank God for what God has done in them, or he's going to talk about how their faith has been broadcast or heard in other parts of the world, but not this time, not this time. He has no time for that at this point. He is worried, and he wants to get straight to the point. In fact, I'm going to put up on here an abbreviated form of those first five verses. I'm just taking out a few things so that you can see. It's just clearly a very quick introduction in the way that we might put who we're writing to at the front and who wrote it, our name at the bottom. They did it all in these days up front. So you have the sender, Paul, who is himself been sent by God. He's an apostle, which means he has been sent by God and Christ, and some brothers who he doesn't name. He's he's writing with others, uh, there are others with him that are greeting the Galatians. And again, we'll get into who these people might be here in just a second, but Paul and some other Christians are the ones sending the letter, and then he clarifies who he's sending it to. It's an appropriately named book. He's writing to the Galatians. Uh, and who are they? Who are the Galatians? Again, we'll get to that in just a second. The point here is it's just a greeting. He's saying hello. And then a salutation, right? The the terrific, or what a pig, or however he wants to announce his greetings this time. And Paul was consistent in how he announced his greetings. In fact, Peter and John were consistent as well. They consistently used 
grace and peace. Now, Chiron is the Greek word that means rejoice. And in the same way that I might say, hey, hello, or hi, that's how they would greet each other. Chiron, rejoice. That was the way, uh, if you've, you know, it may seem strange, like hello seems like such a natural greeting. What is rejoice? Why would they pick that? I don't know. I mean, in Mexico where we have family, they say bueno when they answer the phone, which means good. So, I mean, everybody has different customs on how they greet each other. And in this case, they would say rejoice or Karin. But Paul and others would play on this word Karin, and they would use the word charis, which means grace, a very distinctive Christian word, which is, again, the gift of God, grace. They would greet each other grace. That was sort of the Greek way that they might uh, play on the common Greek way of greeting. And then, of course, a lot of people know what is the common Hebrew way of greeting? Shalom, right? And so here you have grace and peace, the Greek, common Greek, or a little bit of a play on the common Greek greeting, and shalom, the peace which Christ has brought about to believers, which was the common Hebrew greeting. Peter, Paul, John, all used this greeting. They were all thoroughly Jewish. They would have been used to shalom as a greeting, but they were a part of establishing a church that was to a large degree Gentile, and their common way of greeting used both. And finally, as mentioned above, Paul is sent from God, and so this greeting is ultimately not just from Paul and the brothers, but it's from God to the Galatians through Paul and the brothers. Now that's the beginning of this letter. Hello, Galatians, it's Paul and my brothers. How are you doing, right? We did remove a few things uh, from the greeting, or I didn't uh, focus on them. Two parts, right? He adds a couple of phrases that I temporarily removed just to show that it was a common greeting. And here they are up on the screen. And, you know, if you were greeting somebody and you slipped in a phrase or two, it must be because it's on your mind, right? I mean, normally if I'm just going through my day, I say, hello, hey, how are you doing? Right? But if something's on my mind, I might it might come out already in my greeting. And sure enough, Paul has a couple of things that come out on his greeting that were on his mind. And here they are. Uh, first, at the end of verse 1, he says, He's an apostle through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him, who raised Jesus from the dead. And then in verse 4, grace to you and peace, which is the common greetings, from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us out of this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. So what are the themes of those two things that demonstrate what was on Paul's mind? What are the things uh, it, that we can glean from those? One, he's very clear that he's not from man. I, I left that out. Not from man, not from men, but through God and Jesus. So Something is quickly on Paul's mind. I mean, he has barely got out his name before he says, by the way, I'm not from man. I am come from God. I'm sent from God. The second is there are clear themes of the gospel. Again, he's barely gotten out his name when he talks about Jesus is the one who God raised from the dead, which is, again, we said last week, a critical part of the gospel, the resurrection of Christ. Or after he says grace and peace, or hello, after he greets, he says, this is from God who gave Jesus for our sins according to his will that we might be delivered, which again is the gospel. That's the message of the gospel. So there are two key themes that come out that Paul can hardly say hello without talking about, and that is, I am sent not 
by myself. This is not something I dreamed up or somebody else. This is from God. I come from God. And second, I'm thinking about the gospel. The gospel is on my mind. And from our introduction, we probably aren't surprised that those two things are on Paul's mind, right? Because remember, what was the first of the three questions Paul's going to have to answer? Hey, who are you, Paul? How can you, make, how can you say that circumcision isn't necessary, that the law of Moses is no longer necessary. You can't do that. God made that law. It's been that way for thousands of years. Who are you? So it's odd. It's not odd. It's uh, not surprising that this idea of Paul not coming from man but coming from God would be so quickly on his mind. And second, we talked about Paul was so anxious that they would be going to the law because they would be leaving the gospel. And so again, it's not surprising that so quickly in Paul's hello that he's already establishing the message is not his own and his message is ultimately and intimately related to the gospel. But that's all he says in terms of greeting. There's no thanksgiving, no calling out their their love or their hope or their work, their gifts. Rather, he jumps right in to the occasion, that which caused him to write. And verse 6 says, I'm amazed you're so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. So there's the occasion. They're leaving the gospel. And it's clear that when he says the grace of Christ, you're departing him who called you by the grace of Christ, it's clear that Paul means the gospel because he goes on to say they're going to another gospel. So the gospel is what they're leaving. And he'll use the word gospel in every single verse of that occasion, Verses 6 to 9. So the gospel is why he's writing, the fact that they're leaving it. And they're leaving it for something that is not another gospel. Paul wouldn't refer to it as a gospel. It's likely that those who came and taught afterwards did refer to it as a gospel. That's why he says, you're leaving it for a gospel. But let me clarify, it isn't a gospel. There is not another gospel. It's likely that those who were teaching were saying, hey, there is some good news, Gentiles, for you all. You guys can be circumcised, and you can keep the law, and you can have the blessings that we've had for thousands of years. It's great news. Aren't you so excited about that? And it's clear that that's what the other gospel is. It was circumcision and law-keeping, which led as the path to salvation. That was the argument. And, and this uh, is summarized well in Acts 15. We'll talk about the history in just a second. But in Acts 15, which was a council that came right after Paul wrote... Here's what they said. They said, some men came from Judea and taught the brothers, unless you are circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. That's right. You cannot be saved unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses. That doesn't sound like good news. So probably at this point in the council, it was gotten to the point where they're trying to argue back and forth. But probably when they were teaching the Galatians, these other folks, it was probably stated positively like I did earlier. As Gentiles, you can be circumcised and follow the customs of Moses and be saved. It's great news I have for you. And again, Paul said that is not a gospel. That is not the gospel, and it is not a gospel. Paul was shocked at this. He says, I'm astonished, I'm amazed that you're doing this. And again, it's not because Paul thought lowly about the law. He knew the law was glorious and ancient. It wasn't that. It was rather because they had something better already. And turn to Galatians 3 just, just quickly. They had already been filled with the Holy Spirit. They were speaking in tongues. They were 
performing miracles. Listen to Galatians 3. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he then who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you do it by works of the law or by hearing with faith? These believers had heard the gospel, heard the message. They had trusted God when they, what they understood. They had received the Spirit and evidenced that through workings of miracles and tongues and other things that made it obvious that they had the gift of God. So Paul was shocked that they would hear this other good news. Hey, here's all you got to do to get the good stuff. Be circumcised and follow the law of Moses. How, how could you say that? You already have the Spirit. You're already working miracles. You, you have forgiveness. You have adoption. How could you do that? He was shocked. And it happened, verse 6 of chapter 1, back to that, so fast. I'm amazed you are so quickly deserting. Again, we'll get to the history in just a second, but less than a year after Paul had been with them. And it was a desertion from Christ. I'm so amazed you're so quickly deserting him. And we started our series many weeks ago reading Galatians 5.1, which is the verse I have on the introductory screen for freedom Christ has set you free. But right after that, it talks about if you go back to the law, if you, not go back, if you go to the law, if you get circumcised, Christ will be of no benefit to you. You will fall from grace. So this is serious. It's a desertion from Christ. It's apostasy in the same way that the Hebrews that we talked about earlier were in danger of apostatizing by going back to the law. And lastly, it is a gift. Remember we said, however it works, however the gospel works, and we tried our best to explain it, it is a gift. God had called them in grace. He had called them as a gift. Now, I think it's interesting that Paul does not presume the best of those that are teaching circumcision. That's, an, that's something that we you know, pride ourselves for. We want to presume the best of those with whom we are working or maybe disagreeing. Paul doesn't presume the best. He's, he doesn't say, hey, they're just misguided. They just, they don't understand. He says they want to distort the gospel of Christ. He says, there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort it. At the end of the letter, he'll say that they are doing this out of self-interest. They don't want to be persecuted and they want to be able to boast in those that they bring into the law. Now, I do think thinking the best of others is a really good strategy in general. But in matters as serious as this, clarity is needed. What was at stake was people's eternal destinies. And in a such a matter, a teacher bears very high, extreme accountability. And again, we see this in Paul's statement. If an angel or me or anyone teaches you wrong on this, they are going to be accursed. So while in general, I think it's good for all of us in our day-to-day -day interactions to think the best of others, uh, to assume positive intent is the way it's often said. In this sake, in this case, there was too much at stake, and Paul had to speak very clearly. And that is still true today, again, as it pertains to the gospel. This message, this gospel, is still what is important for the salvation of all of our souls. And there is judgment with greater strictness 
applied to one who teaches these things, including me right now. Now, that is the introduction, the salutation, and the occasion. And there are things we didn't cover well or cover in a detailed way that we'll go back to over time. But hopefully you can see in this salutation, in this greeting, an emphasis on the message not being from just Paul but from God, the emphasis on the gospel, and hopefully all of this makes sense given our introduction. And all we have left now today in, in this last introduction is to give a bit more historical context which will help us as we make our way through the rest of chapter 1 and chapter 2 in July. First three weeks of July I'll teach and we'll teach through chapters 1 and 2. And there will be more to say later, but today all we need to share are two things. Who were the Galatians? And a brief timeline which will help us place Galatians into the flow of the narrative of Acts. Who were the Galatians? And give me a little bit of a historical timeline so I can understand what's going on. That's all we have left. Let's start with the first. Who were the Galatians? And you might say, I don't care. I understand the point of the letter. I don't, you know, why do I care? It's actually really interesting. It's one of uh, the more interesting stories in the history of biblical interpretation. So even if you don't care, it's still kind of interesting. Have you ever heard anyone say about a particular interpretation or a particular way of looking at uh, a scripture or trying to understand what something means? That can't be true. What you're saying can't be true. That has not been the way that people have understood the scriptures throughout church history. All right, what are, you, are you saying that everyone up until this point has gotten it wrong until you? That's usually a really good argument, actually. It just wasn't in this case. Let me explain what happened, and we'll talk about some history, and we'll need a map. This is a map of Europe. That's right. This is a map of Europe, one of our continents. Have you ever heard of the Gauls? I bet Andre has. Where were the Gauls? France. Have you ever heard of the Celts? Where were they? Yeah, Ireland, Britain. That's right. The Celts. Well, these are actually the same as the... Galatians. It's all one people. The Galatians, the Gauls, the Celts, all one people. This one people group originated, it's believed, uh, from the Danube River area, and they migrated to several places across Europe, including France, the Gauls, England, where they were called Celts, and Turkey, where they were called Galatians. That's right. They went elsewhere, but these three are, are the terms that probably you have heard of. Now, for the sake of our study, we're interested in the ones that went to Turkey, the Galatians. So let's zoom in on Turkey a bit. This is Turkey. And you can see a region to this day. This is a modern map. I think this is from Wikipedia. And you can see today, can you see? I don't know how easy it is to read. Uh, a region still known as Galatia in Turkey. Just above that region, I think I call it out here, is the capital city of Turkey, Ankara, and that is actually where the Gauls, excuse me, the Galatians, the folks from the Danube River, migrated to, and it's an ancient city. It's the city, it's the capital of the country known as Turkey today. This was around the 3rd century BC, so 250, 280, 
BC, and they, you know, as you saw in the previous, you know, they these folks were on the move, and uh, they kept trying to spread even further into Turkey. But this is a city called Pergamum. You guys have maybe heard of that from Revelation. Uh, they were defeated in 232 BC by the king of Pergamum, and so. They kind of settled down in that region, which even today, how many years is this? I guess 1,800, 1,900 years later, still today in that region known as Galatia, they settled down. That was 232 B.C. They were unable to keep moving. Now, shortly after, in the early part of the 2nd century, 180, 170, who was the big power that began to rise? You, know, to rise? So we had, you guys remember from when Frank teaches us through uh, Daniel, you had the Babylonians, you had... Uh, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, you had the Medo-Persians, you had the Greeks, Alexander the Great in 333, but they start to wane. Who comes next? The Romans, right? And the Romans are starting to flex their muscles, 170, 180 BC. And Galatia, at that point, comes under Roman rule and becomes a province of Rome. Now, Galatia was loyal to Rome. Not at first. They sided with their enemies at first, but they learned from that lesson and were very loyal over the next 130-ish years, from 170 to 30 B.C., 40 B.C., very loyal to Rome. And Rome rewarded them and said, hey, for your fidelity, for your faithfulness, we are going to award you some of those southern regions you were unable to get to previously. We're going to give you Pisidia and Phrygia. So there you have it where they were unable to expand earlier because of Pergamum's defense, now they have, by Rome's gift, those regions. I'm leaving out some history, but Rome also granted them lands to the north and to the east. So Rome has bequeathed upon the Galatians this vast province. This is from a, a gentleman named Longnecker. He's a, commentary, a commentator on Galatians, a very good book, where I'm getting this history from. He says, In Paul's day... The Roman province of Galatia stretched right through the heart of Asia Minor, from Pontus on the Black Sea, up at the top, that's the Black Sea, the Mediterranean Sea's at the bottom, all the way to Pamphylia on the Mediterranean. So by the time, again, started out around, you know, third century, they had just, they'd made it to the top part of Turkey, they got stuck there, but over the next span of a couple centuries, Rome gifted them with a much larger block. Now again, you might say, hey, you, I thought this was one of the more interesting parts of interpretation. This is, it sounds like history class. Boring, who cares? Well, here's where it gets interesting. This was during the time of Paul, right? So 40 BC, 30 BC, Paul is at 30 AD, 40 AD. So during that time, the next hundred years or so, they have, the Galatians have this part of Turkey. It wasn't called Turkey, but for our sake, this part of Turkey. Well, in 74 AD, Okay, Vespasian, who was the Roman emperor who destroyed Jerusalem in 70 AD, his son Titus. In 74 AD, they were no longer happy with the Galatians, the Romans were. And they said, I am going to take away Pisidia from you. You no longer get that bottom part. And he made it a different region, not under the Galatian king's rule. And then in 137, just 60 years later, Lyconia was also removed from Galatia, and they were back to more of their initial borders in the north part of Turkey. But for that hundred-year period when Paul was around, uh, before and then while Paul was around, it was it spanned the entire 
body north to south, Black Sea to Mediterranean of Turkey. And here's the rub that makes it interesting. For a short period of time when Paul was alive, Galatia extended across it. But after it, and from then on till today, Galatia was a region in the northern part of Turkey. So when Paul used the term Galatia, he might have used it for any of those areas because that's what Galatia was when he was alive. But really quickly after him, and from then on, if you were alive and you read the term Galatia, what'd you think? It was the north. That's where Galatia was. And it was only a blip in time. I mean, 100 years is not a blip, but in the span of thousands of years, it's a blip. For a blip of time, it was more. So when people would read Galatia, they heard the northern part. And for thousands of years, interpreters assumed Paul must have gone to the north part of Turkey sometime, maybe later in his career, because it's not well documented in Acts that he ever went there. Now, that's fascinating. And so for thousands of years, that's what people believe. I wanted to give a modern example just to, to, to share. This is, I've talked to some of you about this. Have y'all heard about the cunt counties in eastern Oregon wanting to uh, assimilate into Idaho? I think there was even y'all's area, right? Weren't they trying to get out of Fulton County or something? I didn't even think about that until now. So this is not a, I mean, borders move and change. And uh, you can imagine someone you know, reading maybe, I don't know, hundreds of years from now about Oregon and, and, and not understanding that it want, you know, it didn't, Idaho didn't used to look like that or, you know, uh, some county in eastern Oregon that's Idaho. So it could confuse later generations. It'd probably be hard now because knowledge is so ubiquitous. I mean, you can get to this, but in the, you know, ages after Paul, it wasn't so easy to know those things. Another biblical example was when archaeologists tried to determine the site of Jesus's crucifixion. You know, it was believed that the current site, which is called the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, was where Jesus was crucified. There's a lot of evidence pointing to that. But it didn't make any sense because Jesus, according to Hebrews, had been crucified outside the gate, outside the city. And here you see that in Hebrews 13. But the city had expanded over time, and where Jesus was crucified in his lifetime was outside the city. I think about when we went to Oakland Cemetery, and they, I don't know if y'all know where Oakland Cemetery is in Atlanta, but they put that way out in the boondocks of Atlanta. You know, they put the cemetery, well, it's not the boondocks anymore, it's right in the thick of Atlanta, but cities expand and change over time. All that to say, that's more than I probably needed to say, all that to say that there might have been a few people who understood this history, but it wasn't really until the 1890s when a gentleman named Sir William Ramsey argued convincingly that the recipients of Paul's letter were in the southern part of Turkey. And that made a ton more sense because Paul had been there, well documented in Acts. Here is another map to show Paul's on the right side are, are Paul's missionary first missionary journey, went down to the island there of Cyprus and then up to just the bottom part of Turkey. In fact, I think I put some arrows on there to sort of show in this map on the left, which is more modern, you know, we're not, he's not getting up into the, to the breadth, to the body of Turkey, to where Galatia was. So again, you know, for one thing, it's just interesting. Every now and then when someone says, that can't be true, nobody's ever said that in the, that, well, every now and then, that's not a good argument, even though it normally is. Um, and it's really more important because this confounded timelines of Galatians, because you had to say, well, I guess Paul went later, which means Galatians must be written later, 
as opposed to Galatians, was actually the very first letter that Paul wrote, because these churches that are up here are the very first churches that he visited on his first missionary journey. So it changes the way you read it. It wasn't a simmering, well, I wonder if I should write those folk. You know, no, it was, they had just, he had just been there. They were starting to change. It was all related to this question that we read in Acts 15 earlier. So it's important, if not just interesting. Almost done. With this proper understanding of the recipients, we can now end this morning by sharing second and last a timeline of when Paul wrote to this southern part of Turkey. Now, Frank is encouraging us in Old Testament survey to have in our mind a general framework where things are in the Bible. You remember a really fun example of Israel's teenage years, right? Their rebellious years in Numbers 13 to 19, the teen chapters. If you don't know what I'm talking about, you'll have to go back and watch that. It's just a, a mnemonic, a way to remember a uh, portion of Numbers. And I want us to be able to do that here with the book of Acts as it pertains to Paul's writing Galatians. And we're going to anchor this story on four chapters in Acts that are all odd numbers, Acts 9, 11, 13, and 15. Acts 9, 11, 13, and 15. I'm going to be able to, I'm going to switch between this, and you might as well if you have it on your phone or print it out, I'm going to switch between this map and this timeline as we finish here today. Four sort of events that I want to put on a timeline and talk about where Galatians fits in those. We read earlier Acts 9, Paul's conversion. Paul was, we'll talk about this in July, Paul was not struggling. Paul wasn't struggling internally about his sin. Paul wasn't struggling to succeed in Judaism. Paul was doing quite nicely. He was doing fine, and uh, he was persecuting the church of God. He was persecuting the Christians, but Jesus put a stop to that. Confronted him on his road, on the road to Damascus, caused him to be blind, told him that he had called him to become the missionary to the Gentiles, the apostle to the Gentiles. Paul makes it up to Damascus and then spends time in Arabia. He gets his sight back by Ananias coming and speaking to him. And eventually, we read, and I would encourage you to turn to Acts just briefly, Acts 9. Eventually, and this is important, and it's one of those things, because it's important, I'll, I'll mention several weeks because it's hard to remember things. But eventually, after he's converted, he goes up to Damascus. He spends time in Arabia. They try to kill him. Remember, we read that. They try to kill him. They lower him down in a basket. And then where does he go? Verse 26 of chapter 9. He goes to Jerusalem, and that's important. That's the first time since leaving Jerusalem, leaving the area of Judea to go persecute Christians in Damascus. He has been gone years. He's been converted. He's now preaching the gospel he once tried to destroy. He's now back in Jerusalem for the first time, and he's trying to associate with the disciples, and they're like, uh-uh, I know a trick. I've heard about the Trojan horse. I know, I know, you know what it means to sneak and pretend you're a friend and then be killed. No way, but Barnabas takes a chance, he takes a risk, and he brings him in, and it turns out this was true. He really was converted, and he really had changed, and he speaks boldly in Jerusalem, and then they try to kill him there as well, verse 29. So they hear about it, and they send him north, the northwest part of Israel, to Caesarea, a port city on the Mediterranean Sea. They send him off. He's run off. He goes eventually beyond the confines of Israel, up to Turkey, up to Tarsus, 
which is where Paul was from. And he spends 10 years there. We don't hear much about him, but he's up in his hometown for 10 years. And so you can see, I can't see this very well, so I'm going to say dates that I think are in my mind, but I can't read my slide very well. That was around 36 AD to around 46 AD. Converted maybe 33 AD, spent three years in Arabia, three years in Damascus, Arabia, came down to Jerusalem, preached the gospel, was run off there, spends 10 years up in Tarsus. He's been to Jerusalem one time at this point, spent a short time there. Everybody was afraid of him, but then Barnabas brings him along. He preaches the gospel. He's run off. Not long, he's there. Next is Acts 11. Now, Acts 10, you skipped over, is about Peter, and he gets that vision, and he sees the vision of the animals on the sheet, and God is teaching him, don't call the Gentiles unclean. I'm going to include them and my people, not through following the law. I'm going to include them, and I'm going to give them the Spirit by faith, just like you have. That's Acts 10. Acts 11, Peter is having to, he's getting called to task about this. Paul wasn't the first person to be called to task about this gospel of faith. Peter was. Peter gets called to task on it, and he's explaining it in the first 18 verses of Acts 11. But then eventually, in Acts 11, 19, there is some folks who are scattered because of persecution. They're scattered. They teach the God. They, they go and spread the message of Jesus around, and some just speak to Jews, but some, because of Peter's testimony, begin to go share with Gentiles. And eventually, they end up in Antioch, where there's a massive Gentile church that begins. And Barnabas is there, and there's a lot of needs there. And what does Barnabas do? I need help. Where can I get help? I'm going to go get Paul. I haven't seen him in a while. He's been up in Tarsus. I'm going to go get Tars Paul from Tarsus, and I'm going to bring him down to Antioch. So Paul comes down to Antioch. And eventually, there is a famine. A prophet, uh, verse 27 of chapter 11, a prophet comes down from Jerusalem and says, there's going to be a famine and we need to take care of the poor brothers in Jerusalem. So let's bring some famine relief to the people in Jerusalem. So because of this revelation to the prophets, they go down to Jerusalem. Paul's second visit to Jerusalem, he goes down to Jerusalem to bring this famine relief. There's a lot stirring at this time. Peter's already had to defend his ministry to the Gentiles. It's spreading. Antioch was mainly a Gentile uh, conversion. You know, there was uh, a lot happening, and people are wondering what's going on, and some people aren't embracing it. They're just going and teaching the Jews only. Like, there's a lot of questions stirring at this time. But Paul has made his second visit to Jerusalem and spent a short time there bringing famine relief, Acts 11. Acts 13. So eventually that's done, and they go back to Antioch. Acts 12 is where Acts changes, and it's been about Peter, it's been about James, now Peter is persecuted, he's put in jail, James is killed, and there's a shift in the letter. In Acts 13, the Holy Spirit calls Paul and Barnabas to go, to go on mission. And so they go. In Acts 13, 13, they visit Pamphylia and Pisidia. Do you remember those words? Remember, that's the southern part of Turkey that was a part of Galatia at that time. And people begin to believe, especially the Gentiles. Because you remember, 
he's having he's getting run off by the Jews, and he's like, hey, if that's the way you want to be, and Acts 13 is a great chapter, a great history, fun to read through, but eventually he says, look, if that's where you're going to be, I'll go to the Gentiles then. And then Acts 14, he goes to Lyconia. Remember, Lyconia was that other part of Galatia that was taken away in, one, in the 130s or 140s, he go, but at that time was a part of Galatia. He goes there. They want to worship Paul. They want to bow down and worship him, but eventually they kill him or close to kill him. They stone him and leave him from dead, but he lives. And then they go through those cities on their way back to Antioch, but a lot of Gentile believers, a lot of Gentiles believed through that trip. In fact, look at the end of Acts 14, verse 27. When they got back to Antioch and they had gathered everybody together, they reported all the things that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. So this was a big deal. The Gentiles had had a door open and a lot had gone through it. But the key part is this door was one, what was at the top of the door? If it was written, well, if you had something written at the top of the door, it was a door of, what did it say? He began to report all things that God had done with them and how they had opened a door of faith. This was a door that said faith above it. And some people were saying, that's the wrong door. It's fine. Gentiles can come in, but here's the door. It says circumcision and law of Moses. You need to go through that. And that question by Acts 15 had boiled over and had to be dealt with officially in Jerusalem. And so Paul and others go to Jerusalem and they determine whether or not, which door is the right door, door number one or, or door number two. That's the history. Now the red star you see there is when Galatians was written. So that's when Galatians was written. Paul had been to Jerusalem after his conversion, after he was run out of Damascus. He'd been to Jerusalem. He preached the gospel after Barnabas sort of said, hey, it's okay, it's not a trick, it's not a trap. He preached the gospel, then they run him out of there. He spends 10 years in Tarsus. Eventually, there's this Gentile conversion in Antioch. Barnabas brings Paul down from Tarsus. They minister together, but there's this famine. The prophets say, hey, there's a famine coming. Let's go take relief to Jerusalem. Paul and Barnabas go down there. Peter's defending whether or not Gentiles can come through faith. Paul's probably a part of that. Acts doesn't say. Galatians does. Eventually, go back to Antioch. The Holy Spirit calls Paul to go on mission. They go around to the churches of Galatia. They teach them. The Gentiles are converted. They strengthen them. They come back. They're reporting, hey, the Gentiles have a door, and it's a door that's labeled faith. But there's too much now, too much debate, too much. It has to be dealt with officially. Before that happens, those people have gone not just to Antioch, not just from Jerusalem, those people have gone to Galatia, right? You might wonder, really? They went that way? Yeah, yeah. I mean, Jesus said you, you cross rivers and seas, you go long distances to make proselytes. Paul wasn't the only one who went long distances to go proselytes. They had gone to Galatia and they said, it's not a door of faith. It is fine. We will take you, Gentiles. We will take you, but you just have to be circumcised and you have to follow the law of Moses. And Paul hears of this in Antioch. He's like, no, 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 no. I did not get stoned. I did not go through all that trouble. I did not go to all that just so you could get that close and then lose your souls. No, 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 no. I am. So he pins a letter. He pins Galatians. And you can see, no time for introduction or no time for greetings or thank yous. He just, he writes them and then it's boiling over. They eventually go down to Jerusalem in Acts 15 and it's dealt with officially. 
Okay, that's it. That's all I have for today. That's a light introduction to the first nine verses, salutation, the occasion, and then a little bit of historical context. Paul wrote to those churches that he founded in Acts 13 and 14, and he wrote just on the cusp of the Jerusalem Council because Paul knew what his, you know, there's all these questions, which one's right, which door's right? Well, Paul knew which door was right, and he was writing to tell them. That's all we'll do for today. What's coming next, June 2nd, I said June, July 2nd, 9th, and 16th, we'll get into the letter, and we'll try over three weeks, that's a complete guess, but we'll try over three weeks to answer the first of the three questions, which, as I mentioned, is in Galatians 1 and 2. Okay, how, you can't, who are you, Paul, to say that it's this door? It's, this door is an ancient door. Look at that mantle or that, the, what do you call the part? Anyways, I'm trying trying to go somewhere that I don't have written my notes and it's not working. Look at that door. It's ancient. Look how old. There's marks all over. You can tell it's old. It's ancient. Paul, your door. You, who are you to say that door? So Paul's going to answer that in Galatians 1 and 2. But that's all we have for today. Uh, we'll be gone next week. Uh, Susanna's graduation. David's actually going to go up as well. Uh, so Frank is a one-man band next week, including the band. <laughs> and then we'll be back. David will start Philippians. In the uh, end of May, months of, is that correct still? Months of June. And then we'll come back into Galatians for three weeks while David is sunbathing and uh, beaching it, I guess, in July. Okay. So that's the plan. Uh, we're going to pray. We'll sing. We'll watch the video of celebrating the anniversary of our church. And then we'll be uh, dismissed for a time of fellowship. So let me pray. And then we will uh, sing our last song and do that. God, we thank you uh, for the gospel, and we thank you for this word, this book of Galatians, which while we might not uh, struggle with the question of whether we should be circumcised and follow the law, uh, the gospel is a firm foundation for our eternal life. And so you used this occasion of, of that question that was very significant to those in that time and to Paul, a Hebrew of Hebrews, to clarify for us that our entrance into eternal life, that our being able to be heirs of Christ, why should I gain from his reward? That all that is a gift that comes as we understand your gospel and as we believe it. That in some way, in the same way that it might be amazing that a little wire can bring electricity from a power plant to a lamp, in the same way faith brings your spirit and righteousness to us when we trust that word about your Son. And so we thank you for that. We thank you that it was made clear in this book and that we can believe it, therefore, and be saved and become adopted into your family and heirs of yours to inherit the world, to inherit everything uh, that is yours because you own it all. We know, God, that those who follow you at the same time will experience persecution and it will be a difficult life and we do need to take up our cross and we are your slaves. As a good master, we want that, but we are your slaves and so we ask that you would help us to do that, to have the faithfulness to do that, to have the strength from your spirit to do that. In Jesus' name, amen.